Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Town City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 594. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome from Wet UK again. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, man, June has been... For the gardens, brilliant. If you're a plant, for anything else, not so good. Even the dogs, man, it's like struggling even to get the dogs out. They just hate going out in the rain. And oh, man. Anyways, let's take you away from all that and tell you what's coming in today's show. We have an original story to Starship Sofa again. Oh, yes, indeed. There's Sometimes Light Down the Street by Yaroslova Barcelovaca. Now, I'm... I'm... (laughs) Probably, yes, I know, I know. You know what I'm going to say, so we'll just take it as that's that's the gentleman's name. And the story is narrated as well by Heath Miller. We also have, because it's the end of the month, Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. Oh, yes, indeed. So we'll jump straight in. And like I say, original to Starship Sova, there's sometimes light down the street by Yarsilva. Now, I'm not even going to pronounce Yarsilva's second name. Again, original to Starship Sova. Well done there, Jeremy, sir. Yarsilva is a software engineer and connoisseur of strong alcoholic beverages, but also, surprisingly, a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and Codex. Now, how did that happen? His stories have appeared in Galaxy's Edge and Nature, Futures, amongst others. At some point in his life, he left one former empire only to settle in another. And like I say, this story is narrated by Heath Miller. Heath started his acting career as a child in television. His stage work has taken him all over his native Australia, from classrooms to botanical gardens to historical museums and local theatres. He can be found in recording studios, comedy clubs, television sets, convention centres and YouTube videos. Since moving to the USA... Heath has become an Earphones award-winning narrator for audiobooks for Highbridge, Dreamscape, ACX, as well as short stories on fiction podcasts, including Uncanny, Beneath Seas the Skies, and Podcastle. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present There's Sometimes Light Down the Street by Yarsvla Bakosla. The arm appeared in Andre's flat on the day he'd thrown his artwork into a beige carton. He'd made up his mind during the night, and when morning filtered through the curtains, he couldn't think of a reason to postpone getting rid of his old life. It started off easy. A mechanical chore, and he went on until ripping his drawings and paintings off the walls felt like scraping the skin to the flesh to the bone. Behind a sketch, the one Andre had done for his mother, the plaster had a bald spot, and he pressed his palm against it the way he would do with an open wound. Then he drove his fist into it, and again. The last piece to land in the carton was a drawing he'd sent to the Krakow Academy, a boy and his dog. Four years on, and closing his eyes, he could still see the letter, the word rejected, buried underneath all the fineness and the antiquated calligraphy. When there was nothing left, and the wall stood bare, he stared at his right hand, bringing his fingers together as though holding a brush. 
phantom limbs, phantom pain, phantom dreams. He should have listened to Evelyn. He should have stopped after that rejection letter. Forget it. Forget it. It's over. Forget it, he said, and wondered if he ever would. In the evening, he came home from work, armed with two bags, one with groceries and another with twin bottles of Slivovitz. He was about to remove his shoes when he realized something was off. The orphaned walls? No, he thought, glancing past the end of the corridor. He walked into the living room, and that was when he saw it. An arm sticking out of the wall, cut off just above the elbow. A woman's arm. Watercolor pattern of veins, thin wrist like a plaster cast. In the evening's light, the wall itself resembled diseased skin that had grown a pale, unnatural appendage. It's a mold, a prank. Slender fingers twitched, and the hand patted the wallpaper, feeling it. Andre blinked, stupidly. After the red ebbed from his eyes and his heart picked up a frenzied pace instead of you're gonna get a coronary one, his brain attempted to rationalize the situation. It could still be a prank. Someone must have hidden behind the wall. His friend Marek hadn't really flown to Portugal or had put someone up to a stunt. Heels against the floor molding, Andre skirted the living room to slip into the kitchen. Grey mound of dishes in the sink, a tea kettle on the stove, a flat window, doorway into the evening. Nobody crouched on the wall's other side. The arm protruded from nowhere. Iciness spilled into his fingers in pinpricks. He grabbed the doorframe and stumbled back into the living room. What the hell is this? He froze, staring at the arm, and then stomped his foot at it. What the hell is this? There was no reaction. He fished out the phone from his pants, and on the third attempt, dialed his fiancée's number. Hi, what's up? Evelyn. The words swarmed in his head. What should he tell her? She started talking, and for a brief period he couldn't register what she was saying. The conference has been humdrum, but we're actually on a high-altitude glacier here. Summer skiing, imagine that. That's the Austrian Alps for you. Evie, he said. Yes? Something's happened. I don't know what's happened. Don't tell me you haven't been watering the tulips. Oh, by the way, good that you're calling. I have a wonderful idea. We should come here in winter. I mean, it's pretty amazing as it is, but imagine how much better it would be in December or January. We could even celebrate Christmas here. I hear lots of folks do that. The arm kept still. Without thinking, he said, I don't enjoy skiing, Evie. I don't understand it. What the hell should he tell her? That there's a part of a human body sticking out of the wall. You always say so, but I've no idea what that means. How can one not understand skiing? It's healthy. It's fun. High altitude, but you can't see the dome over Russia from here. It doesn't spoil the view if that's your concern. And the convention center has offered all the people at the conference a discount for the next day. Discount, yes. You're doodling, right? You sound distracted. Slowly, eyes fixed on the arm. Andre lowered himself on the couch. I always know when you're doodling, darling. You can't draw. You don't have the skill. I've been telling you this for ages, even before you got the expert opinion. It's a stupid dream anyway. You know I mean well, right? Evie. Listen, I need to run. Have you been watering the tulips? Promise you'll think about the Alps. Short beeps. Andre had no fear of spiders. But he'd read somewhere that two types of arachnophobics existed. The monitors wouldn't let the spider out of their sight. The blunters would stick their heads in the sand. Well, at least he wasn't a blunter.
The hand patted the wall again. Thoughts pushed their way out of his subconscious. A random crowd. An afterimage of the last sketch he'd thrown into the carton. A boy and his dog. The fact that he'd wanted to call Evelyn in the morning to let her talk him out of throwing away his dreams. Why would she? She was the one who handled practical thinking in their relationship, who knew about discounts. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Concentrate. The silence was a thick soup, clogging his ears, trying to keep his knees from buckling. Andre approached the wall. It was definitely a woman's arm, fine, shapely. He touched the back of the palm, and it shivered at his fingertips. Shit. He stifled the impulse to recoil. You aren't a blunter. That's all right. That's... We're all monkeys. We're afraid of unusual things. A visceral reaction. She might be just as confused. When he took the hand, its fingers squeezed his. A warm, soft hold. Human. Carefully, Andre freed himself and pushed a telephone table over from the corridor. It would have been easier to pull, but letting the arm out of his sight made him aware of every inch of his own back. Imagination presented him with a picture. The arm grabbing the pen he'd laid on the table and stabbing him with it, thick crimson beading the blank sheet of paper. He straightened, instinctively covering the veins on his wrist. Come on, old boy, come on. Are you a man after all? What can it, she, really do to you? On stiff legs, he took a step toward the arm, picked up the pen, slipped it into the woman's fingers. The hand shivered and, in nervous strokes, produced a sentence in a language composed of distant school memories. The woman wrote, in Russian, I'm afraid. He stared at the words, chuckled, then burst into laughter. Afraid. She's afraid. She's afraid, you fool, same as you. He couldn't stop laughing until wet lined his cheek. A minute later, he realized a simple fact. She was inside the dome. Nobody used Russian anymore. Even those Russians who'd landed on the lucky side, outside, when Reagan had stamped his solution to the Cold War into Europe's cheekbone. Andre had been in the fourth grade, but the memory remained like a fresh print. A week after the tear-down-this-wall speech at the Brandenburg Gate, he'd woken up to the bedroom singing in a low hum. The whole of it, the ceiling, the floor, the walls. His parents dragged him out of the flat and into the sea of cloned pale faces. Hushed voices, repeating, earthquake, earthquake. But it wasn't an earthquake. Rather, something colossal being born hundreds of miles away. Only one recording survived the event, captured by a military camera at a border town. A film reel marred by radiation sparks, an ink wave cropping up, devouring the picture, working its way towards the graphite of the clouds. What had astonished Andre back then was the speed an almost apathetic crawl of the black edge, like a tiger circling its prey. It took a full ten minutes for the dome to close at the tip. A sarcophagus. Russians had raised one over Chernobyl's nuclear plant. Reagan had raised one over Russia's European half. Andrei exhaled. He wasn't simply communicating with a disembodied arm... He was communicating with a living, breathing person in the dome's belly. He'd had only one operation in his life, but he recalled the sensation that went with inhaling the anesthetic gas. Finding himself at the end of a tunnel, white, sweating walls spreading, then squeezing around him. The room pulsed in the same way now. Afraid he would faint, Andre threw open the window and pressed his fists into the sill. Inside the dome, a place that had stayed hermetically sealed for two decades. 
He could see himself landing interviews, late-night appearances, a spot on the evening news. People in the street below, a girl in a flowery dress, a fellow glued to his phone, well on his way to becoming a hunchback, an old lady with a pug, like a smaller version of herself. They had no idea what was happening three stories above them. A plane was drawing a chalk line across the evening's pink. I'm afraid, in uneven strokes. He glanced back at the arm. How much time had passed? Five minutes. The woman must have been waiting for something. A reassurance, a response. He could try scribbling an answer, although he'd last written in Russian in school, in a different Europe, in the 80s. But obviously she wouldn't be able to see anything. Andre wandered to the table and touched the paper. The word afraid, tracing the ink trails. An amalgam of shapes, nothing but lines and curls. Then he gasped and traced the letters again. He hunched over, put the pen into the woman's fingers again, and, guiding her hand, slowly outlined, I'm afraid, too. She had an elegant forearm. Elegant, but pale. It wouldn't have looked out of place on a Grecian statue. Her muscles flexed. You wrote me, too? Yes. Perhaps his Russian teacher hadn't been so bad after all. Please, call 03. I don't know what's happening. I'm in Podolsk. Pakovia, Ulitsa, 13. Podolsk. So really inside the dome. There was nothing Andre could do for her. No one to contact. They could as well live in different worlds. I'm in Poland, he wrote with her hand. He had to repeat it for her to understand. And he knew she'd understood because her fingers spasmed. He managed to catch the pen before it rolled off the table. After a while, her fingers felt for the pen again. Could you stay with me? Andre exhaled. What's happened? What's happened to you would have taken twice as long to say. He had to make the communication on his side less cumbersome, and cutting back on words was one way to do it. Don't know. Watched ORT in the morning. Something felt off about the anchor. All jittery, shrugged at odd times, got names wrong. He stared into the camera in the end and said people shouldn't be afraid if unusual things occur. I think he read that off the teleprompter. Went all pale like a mushroom. I became worried, but still went to work. I'm strong, you know. It's not easy to throw me off balance. The paper was full. Andre brought a fresh sheet from the corridor, and she continued. On second thought, that was really funny what I wrote. I'm so off balance now. You're holding up well. Thanks. And thanks for staying with me. So I come home after work, go into the kitchen, open number three. Number three? Yeah, number three. The feast of feasts. Canned food. We have four types. Number three is vegetables we can still grow. Twenty years under the dome, you know, not many options left. I'm sorry. Shouldn't be. Not your fault. I start eating, I munch, and there's a hissing coming from behind. I turn, and... the wall. Pitch black, some substance snailing down as if the plaster were melting. Andre hesitated for a second, and wrote, Wow. My feelings, exactly. Got funny thoughts at that moment. People always get those in times of stress, no? Can you imagine I was asking myself if my neighbors from above had spilled a can of resin if I should talk to them? And then I thought, why not touch the stuff, see if it's really resin? And it sucked in my arm. The woman's fingers trembled. Have you tried pulling back? Pause. I don't understand what you've written. Can you call help? No. Wait. Let's do the following. I write a word and you repeat it, okay? Then you write something. 
I need to get used to your handwriting some more. Okay. I can't think straight right now. Maybe you start? Andre chuckled. The person on the other side of the curtain always seemed stronger and more composed. He was an empty shell, he said to himself. A daydreamer, a failure. He wouldn't know how to begin any better than her. On the eve of his first date with Evelyn, it was she who'd suggested he needed a coffee. Guilt nibbled at him gently at the thought of Evelyn, the physical contact, the warmth of the woman's skin under his palm, the faint smell of perfume when he ran his fingers over his forehead, like foreplay for a sexual act that would never come. But then again, in reality, they weren't doing anything wrong, were they? Dusk, he wrote. Dusk, she echoed. Terracotta. Florence, he thought. The city of painters he'd always wanted to visit. The red-headed city bathing in sunlight, sunlight bouncing off terracotta roofs. Andre threw a glance at the carton where his sketches lay buried. Terracotta posed a problem, though. It took them five attempts to work their way through it. He found he needed to put in additional effort when writing R's and T's to get them intelligible. She, on the other hand, now that she'd calmed down, her letters curled into full round contours, her A's ending with upward flourishes. Cobblestone, he wrote. Cobblestone it is. Water. I used to listen to the rain in the evenings. Water. Andre repeated after her. Me too. He straightened and glanced at the window. In a different world, they could have met somewhere else. In Italy. Why not? Her as a tourist, him a street painter. He would wear a beret, palette in hand. A speed portrait, a portrait for the beautiful lady. She would smile. The smile in his imagination was Evelyn's. Damn. Do you live alone? He wrote. Separated, five years ago, and I'd lost my parents at the end of the Cold War. They were on a work trip, right at the border, when Reagan raised the dome. Andre realized, he hoped, illogically, that she wouldn't ask him about his love situation. And maybe she did. She started writing, And you're when the pen froze in mid-sentence. He waited. He gave her hand a squeeze, but she shook him off. He studied her pattern of veins and tried to imagine what she looked like, with a defiant nose tip, just like her flourishes, and sun playing in terracotta hair. What had happened? And his mind responded. What could have happened? Perhaps the substance on her side was toxic. Or perhaps she decided that talking to him didn't bring her anything. Andre walked to the window. The distant haze was uniform, but he tried to imagine the horizon curving into the tip of the dome. A grey abscess he knew enclosed the landmass from Smolensk up to the Ural Mountains. The pen was still in his hand, and he began doodling, right there on the windowsill. Banging on the wall tore him out of his stupor. I'm sorry. I needed to concentrate. When I came home, I switched on the TV. They're broadcasting emergency news, but it's so faint, I can't hear a bloody thing. The TV's in the living room, I'm in the kitchen, and there's sea in my ears. They'll probably broadcast again. Just calm down. I can't. I wish I could be as composed as you are, but I can't. Andre laughed, composed, confident, maybe in another life. You do something to relax, he wrote. I draw. I'm an artist. He paused. I wanted to draw, too. Don't have what it takes. Oh, yes, you do. I felt your hand. I'm no Van Gogh. I'll show you. How about we switch places? Let me do the outlining. 
It was like an electric shock, the inverse contact, her palm over the back of his. Then she guided him into a line, an umbilical cord of a picture yet unsure of itself, and in a moment they were drawing together. A curve, closing in on itself, connecting at the bottom. Another, starting near the same point. Dog's legs. Thank you. I feel better. How did it come out? She wrote. But he stared at the sketch. A dog. Half of his piece for the Krakow Academy. Somehow, over a thousand miles, their thoughts had crossed. Told you you can draw. He didn't know how to respond. He'd sent something while she was guiding his hand, as if he was dusting off a forgotten skill. It felt good. Perhaps Plato had the right idea, and all learning was remembering. Perhaps in time he would be able to reproduce what she'd shown him. Oh my, she wrote. I can hear it now. I think they've cranked up the volume in the studio. The guy keeps repeating that if somebody came into contact with the displacement substance, they should hold their breath until enough CO2 accumulates in the body. Of course, Andre thought. Teleportation. The Russians must have been researching it to escape the dome, to reverse the last two decades. Test a thing called displacement substance in a lab, and a few samples are bound to wind up in unexpected places. The woman's veins pulsed. I'm afraid. If I hold my breath, I may pass out. I will pass out. I can already feel it. Andre exhaled and rolled the pen in his fingers. It's okay. I'm here for you. I'll push you through the wall. Funny. He'd been holding back the words since the very beginning, trying to conserve time. But now he found that outlining didn't take that long. Or maybe they both really had gotten used to the way their strange conversation unfolded. I'm scared. Don't be. It'll be okay. I'll take care of you. Do you ever dream of living a different life? Andre didn't respond. He glanced at the window again and wrote, What does your town look like? It's still beautiful. We have organic lamps for the sun now. Only I wish they'd be less pale. But there's sometimes light through the old church's door down the street. I think they've got some candles left, and the glow is as yellow and warm as I remember the sun to be. It could have been his house, his town, but a universe away. The miracle of birth, someone entering the world on one side of the fence, someone on the other. Space was meaningless, and it repeated itself until, from its folds, similar streets and houses and churches emerged to envelop the same loneliness, same hope. Same longing. Hold your breath. When her hand went limp, he held it for a moment. Then he gave it a gentle push. The man sat in an empty room. Next to the couch stood a beige carton. Half concealed by the shadows which stretched over the floor and the wall. The phone rang. Hi. It's me again. The evenings are something here. Josephine drove us to a country shank for dinner. I guess I ate more than I can allow myself in a month. Did you think about the Alps? We can fly here in the middle of December. If I reserve the rooms tomorrow or the day after, we can still make it. We can use that discount. The man kept silent, studying the sketch of a dog. Then he laid the phone, which was still talking, next to him. Put the pencil to the paper and started drawing a figure of a boy. And there you go. Don't forget a copyright is Yoslas. Thank you so much, sir. And Heath, that is extraordinary. Thank you so much. We'll have a lot more of your voice on the show, if you don't mind. And well, <laughs> end of the month. Mr. Come on, dust them down, brush them up, push them up to the front of the stage. It's Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and bibulatory ejaculations, my proto-anarchically vulgarinous listeners, and welcome to this June 2019 Science News Update. I'm your host for this completely puerile science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. 
So we are going to go back to the standard old format this month. So much so that, yes, I'm going to start with Idiot Scientist of the Month. Unfortunately, it's very sad, but we're going to return to the story of Jian Kuhi of China. Uh, I thought we were over and done with that story. I had the mistaken belief that he was off the board and could do no more harm than he has already done. And, of course, as I am much of the time, I was wrong. He may be done with his public research and may be locked up by the Chinese government, but he is still reaching out and making lives more crappy. Now that takes real talent. For those of you who are not regular listeners and do not remember Jean Kuhi, the man shocked the world last year by editing the genomes of two twin girls. He explained that the DNA edits would protect the babies against HIV infection once they grew up. And to do this, he edited their DNA and altered an HIV receptor protein in the girls called CCR5, so it would not allow HIV to attach to it. Not only was this brain-dead reason for messing with human genomes widely denounced by the scientific community as utterly unethical and kind of pointless, but new research suggests that the mutations may actually shorten the lives of the poor girls who are his victims. This is just wrong, and it upsets me quite a bit. The new paper was published in Nature Medicine and is entitled CCR5 Delta 32 is Deleterious in the Homozygous State in Humans. The work came out of the lab of Dr. Rasmus Nielsen of UC Berkeley, and his group employed genotyping and death register information from 409,000 individuals in the UK Biobank to investigate fitness effects of the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. In other words, he checked to see how well did people survive who had the same mutation that that idiot he put into those little girls. Well, studying the record, Nielsen found that people who had two mutated copies of the gene had a significantly higher death rate between the ages of 41 and 78 than those with one or no copies. The authors estimate, quote, there is a 21% increase in the mortality rate in individuals who are homozygous for the Delta 32 allele, unquote. Nielsen says specifically, Beyond many ethical issues involved with the CRISPR babies, the fact is, right now, with current knowledge, it is still very dangerous to try to introduce mutations without knowing the full effects of what those mutations do. In this case, it is probably not a mutation that most people would want to have you are actually, on average, worse off having it. So previous studies have associated two mutated copies of that gene, CCR5, with a fourfold increase in the death rate after an influenza infection, and higher overall mortality rate may reflect this greater susceptibility to death from flu. But the researchers say there could be any number of explanations, since the protein CCR5 codes for, and which no longer works in those having a mutation in the copies, is involved in lots of body functions. Nielsen adds, quote, Because one gene could affect multiple traits, and because, depending on the environment, the effects of a mutation could be quite different, I think there can be many uncertainties and unknown effects in any germline editing, unquote. CCR5 codes for a protein that, among other things, sits on the surface of immune cells and helps some strains of HIV, including the most common ones, to enter and infect them. Naturally occurring mutations that disable the protein are rare in Asians, but a mutation found in about 11% of Northern Europeans protects them against HIV infection. The genetic mutation Delta-32 refers to a missing 32 base pair segment in the CCR5 gene. That mutation interferes with the localization on the cell surface of the protein for which CCR5 codes and keeps HIV from binding and infection. He was unable to duplicate the natural mutation, but he appears to have generated a similar deletion that would also inactivate the protein. One of the babies was reported to have a single copy of CCR5 modified, and the other had both copies edited. 
Nielsen finishes with, quote, But inactivating a protein found in all humans and most animals is likely to have negative effects. Here's a functional protein that we all know has an effect in an organism, and it is well conserved among different species. So it is likely that a mutation that destroys the protein is on average not good for you. Otherwise, evolutionary mechanisms would have destroyed that protein a long time ago. Unquote. Duh. If a protein has a long, evolved, and conserved function, you don't just kill the function of it and get rid of it. I better go on to the next story before I start screaming. This is just, this is awful. Let's move away from biology for a second so I can, I can cool my jets. Yeah. So one of the big questions that physicists have asked for several decades is where do heavy elements come from? Now, this may seem like a strange or stupid question since we just look around and they're buried all over the earth, right? Gold, silver, platinum, they're just there. Well, it's not quite that simple. Nothing is ever quite that simple. They are not just there. The source of lighter elements like carbon, oxygen, and iron is easy. They form inside stars before being spewed out in stellar explosions called supernovas. This is where the quote comes from, We are made of star stuff. Well, carbon, oxygen, iron, and elements like that are what we are made of. But to create elements further down the periodic table, an extreme environment densely packed with neutrons is required. That's where a chain of reactions known as the R process occurs, in which atomic nuclei rapidly absorb neutrons and undergo radioactive decay to create new elements. Yeah, kind of sounds like Harry Potter alchemy, but that's where heavy elements come from. Dr. Brian Mesker of Columbia University and his research group have recently published a hypothesis of where those heavy elements could have arisen. The paper was published May 8th in the journal Nature. The paper suggests that heavy elements like gold, platinum, and uranium may have formed in special stars called collapsars. These are rapidly spinning massive stars that collapse into black holes as their outer layers explode in a rare type of supernova. A disk of material swirling around the new black hole as it feeds can create the conditions necessary for that astronomical alchemy that I mentioned earlier. Messier says, quote, Black holes in these extreme environments are fussy eaters. They can gulp down only so much matter at a time, and what they don't swallow blows off in a wind that is rich in neutrons. Just the right conditions for the creation of heavy elements. Unquote. It was thought until recently that colliding neutron stars could be the source of heavy metals, but it turns out they just don't produce enough. Mesker says that collapsars can occur shortly after stars begin to form, and that the phenomenon could be a much more prolific producer of heavy elements. A single collapsar might generate 30 times as much R-process material as a neutron star merger, and could generate a few hundred times the Earth's mass in gold. The researchers report that collapsars might be responsible for 80% of the R-process elements in the universe, with neutron star mergers only making up about the last 20%. Next story, and frankly this one terrifies me. Sunscreen may be a two-edged sword. Let me explain what I mean. On May 6th, researchers at the FDA revealed the results of a small clinical trial designed to test how four of the most common sun-filtering molecules on the market behave when they've been sprayed on or rubbed in. The results, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, show that contrary to what sunscreen manufacturers have been saying, UV-blocking chemicals do seep into our circulation. Now, don't freak out and toss your tubes of sunscreen quite yet. There's no evidence, so far, that they're doing anything harmful inside the body. But the revelation will have serious impacts on sunscreen manufacturers from this point going forward and may change what options you're going to find on the drugstore shelves before the year is out. Primary researcher Dr. Teresa Michelle, director of the FDA's Division of Non-Prescription Drugs, says, quote, Everyone had always thought that because these are intended to work on the surface of the skin, that they wouldn't be absorbed. But they are, unquote. 
Michelle's team found that it only took a few hours after the application of sunscreen for the chemicals to infiltrate the bloodstream and shoot up to concentrations above the FDA's toxicology threshold. Doesn't that make you feel all warm inside? The researchers saw the same patterns in all 24 of the volunteers they recruited, 12 men and 12 women, who were randomly assigned to apply one of four commercially available sunscreens, two sprays, a lotion, and a cream. The participants applied their potions according to the recommended labeling, four times a day for four days to 75% of their bodies, roughly the amount of skin you'd be showing in a bathing suit. For those four days and three days after, the researchers collected blood every few hours to be analyzed for the presence of avobenzone, oxybenzone, octocrylene, and N-capsule. They discovered that while it took only a few hours for the UV-blocking chemicals to spike over the target for three of the four formulations, those levels remained elevated through to the end of the study three days after the participants had ceased spraying and smearing the stuff on. Only the cream users saw their chemical concentrations trail off sooner. All this means that sunscreen companies are going to be very unhappy in the future. To prove that they're safe and effective, the FDA is now asking U.S. sunscreen makers to submit additional data measuring how these ingredients are absorbed into the blood. If they don't absorb above the toxicological threshold, then it's not an issue. But if they do, the FDA wants to see more tests. If U.S. manufacturers fail to conduct absorption studies and provide that data to the FDA by the time the agency's new rules are finalized in November, it could mean, in theory, the removal of those products from shelves. Only two ingredients so far have been ruled safe and effective, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And those go back like 150 years. The FDA has said they will grant deferrals to the companies willing to commit to undertaking the necessary studies for the remaining 12 molecules in question. The next story of the night is a dark, nasty piece of news for the medical community and patients alike across the world, probably more dire than the measles epidemic in the U.S., It appears that antibiotic resistance has been found in wild bacteria to the antibiotic of last resort. The recently reported identification of the MCR9 gene is scary as blazes. This is a novel bacterial gene that confers resistance against the antibiotic colistin. Colistin is one of the world's few last resort antibiotics. The new paper was published this month in the journal mBio, and the work was done in the lab of Dr. Martin Wheatman of Cornell University. The newly discovered gene, MCR9, belongs to a class of plasmid-borne genes that confer resistance to colistin. To date, there are eight MCR homologs that have been described. Wheatman's group found MCR9 in the bacterium Salmonella enterica while screening Salmonella for antimicrobial resistance genes. Well, I guess they succeeded. Weedman said that, quote, This last resort antibiotic has been designated a highest priority antibiotic by the United Nations World Health Organization, and the MCR9 gene causes bacteria to resist it. In treatments, if colistin does not work, it literally could mean death for patients. Unquote. It seems to be that colistin is one of the only therapies left for treating serious bacterial infections in critically ill patients. Until recently, bacterial resistance to colistin was thought to be acquired solely via chromosomal point mutations. That is, until plasmid-mediated colistin's resistance genes were described in E. coli. MCR9 is the latest in this new series of mobilized colistin resistance genes. What does that mean, mobilized? Well, it means that mobilized gene can be carried on a plasmid. Plasmid is a small circular piece of DNA that can be passed around between bacteria, from bacteria to bacteria, like a bunch of teenagers kind of passing around a bong. The paper says, quote, Plasmid-borne MCR genes that confer resistance to colistin pose a threat to public health at an international scale 
as they can be transmitted via horizontal gene transfer and have the potential to spread globally, unquote. Weedman finishes with, quote, if you go to a hospital and this gene is floating around, it can be real trouble. The gene is movable. It jumps. In a hospital setting, being able to screen a patient for resistance allows doctors and nurses to isolate the patient and maintain biosecurity. Therefore, the establishment of a complete reference of MCR-type genes that can be used to screen for plasmid-mediated colistin resistance is essential for developing effective control strategies, unquote. Next story in the queue, the United States sucks. Okay, yeah, I know. I have an international audience here, so the question on all your minds is, well, Dr. Camp, sure, the United States sucks, but why does the United States suck this time? Here's why. A study suggests that compared with other global agricultural powerhouses, the U.S. has just about the laxest restrictions there are on potentially harmful pesticides. Dr. Nathan Donnelly with the Center for Biological Diversity reports these findings in the June 7th issue of Environmental Health. An analysis of agricultural pesticide regulations reveals that the United States widely uses several chemicals that are banned or being phased out in the European Union, Brazil, and China, three of the world's other leading pesticide users. Downey reviewed the approved status of over 500 pesticides that have been used in the United States. Currently, 72 pesticides approved in the United States are banned or being phased out in the European Union, Brazil, and China. These include chemicals that have been implicated in pesticide poisonings in the U.S., like chloropicrin and paraquat. Using the U.S. Geological Survey's record of estimated annual pesticide use, Donnelly determined how much U.S. agriculture uses pesticides outlawed elsewhere. And of the 544 million kilograms of pesticides used in the country in 2016, Almost 200 million of that comprised chemicals banned in the EU, Brazil, and China. Since the EPA was formed in 1970, 134 pesticides have been discontinued in the U.S. The EPA prohibited 37 of those, and only five in the last 18 years. Pesticide manufacturers voluntarily withdrew the other 97. In many cases, this is likely because the pesticides sold poorly and it's expensive to maintain EPA approval. That's what Donnelly suggests. Several chemicals showed a steep decline in usage before cancellation. The, the imbalance between voluntary cancellations and government regulations creates a bias toward pesticide use in the U.S. based on economic factors rather than health and environmental risks. Voluntary phase-outs can also drag out far longer than the one-year grace period typical of government-imposed bans, Donnelly says. Here's the last story of the evening. In the past, I have mentioned studies that suggest if you use anti-heartburn medicines that reduce acid, you might be opening yourself up to more infections as you potentially kill off some of the good microfauna in your gut. But it appears that a recent study suggests that those acid reducers may be, well, way worse than we thought in the long run. Scientists have now linked long-term use of a common class of heartburn drug with fatal cases of cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and upper GI cancer. Proton pump inhibitor drugs, PPIs, suppress the production of gastric acid, and are routinely prescribed to treat heartburn and ulcers and acid reflux. As I reported previously, prior research has suggested that prolonged use of these drugs has adverse health effects. However, results from the new study involving more than 200,000 U.S. veterans has clarified which causes of death are linked to taking PPI for long periods and highlight the need to increase awareness of the potential risks and to reduce unnecessary use of these drugs. 
Dr. Ziad Al-Ali of Washington University's School of Medicine in St. Louis published his paper in the British Medical Journal this month. Al-Ali says that, quote, taking PPIs over many months or years is not safe, and now we have a clearer picture of the health conditions associated with long-term PPI use. Here's the real problem. This is a very commonly used drug. PPIs are prescribed to more than 15 million people in the U.S., and millions more purchase PPIs over the counter and continue to take the acid-suppressing drugs over the long term without any medical supervision. That includes many blood relatives of mine, since gastric reflux seems to run in my family. Multiple studies have linked PPI use to serious effects, including infections and cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and pneumonia. Prior research by Al-Ali's group found PPI users are at an increased risk of mortality. What hasn't been understood is which specific causes of death might be associated with taking PPIs. The paper says, quote, We have finally produced a detailed quantitative analysis of the specific causes of mortality that can be attributed to taking PPIs, unquote. To look at this in more detail, the team turned to medical records held in the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs database, and they looked at data acquired between 2002 and 2004, and they identified 157,000 people, primarily Caucasian men aged 65 and older, who had been newly prescribed PPIs, and another 56,000 who had been newly prescribed a different type of acid-suppressing drug known as the H2 blocker. All 214,000 patients were then followed up for the next 10 years. After controlling for potentially confounding factors, the researchers found a 17% increase risk of death in the PPI group when compared with the H2 blocker group. Death rates for PPIs were 387 per 1,000 people, and death rates for H2 blockers were 342 per 1,000. This equated to an extra 45 deaths attributable to long-term PPI use per 1,000 people. Al-Alim comments on this result by saying, quote, Given the millions of people who take PPIs regularly, this translates into thousands of excess deaths every year, unquote. When the researchers looked at specific causes of death, they found that PPI use was linked with deaths caused by cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and upper GI cancer. When I read that, my immediate response was, what? I thought people took these drugs to reduce the probability of getting lower esophageal cancer. And what, now they're getting upper GI cancer instead? I don't know. All of this makes me wonder whether stomach acid isn't probably more of a good thing to have, at least at normal levels. The study also found that more than half of the people in the PPI group were prescribed drugs without any documented gastrointestinal indication that would suggest the drugs were medically required. That was the other point at which I said, what? Among that group of individuals, PPI-related death rates were even higher from heart disease and chronic kidney failure and stomach cancer than they were in the other group. These are really ugly statistics. Al-Ali says of this, quote, Most alarming to me is that serious harm may be experienced by people who are on PPIs but may not need them. Overuse is not devoid of harm, unquote. Another finding is that prolonged use of even low doses increases the risk of death. This suggests that any prescription of PPI should be limited to patients for whom the benefits will outweigh the risks and for as short a treatment time as possible. There should also be more effort to be made to make people more aware of the potential dangers of using PPIs over the long term. Al-Ali finishes the paper with, quote, Efforts to target and reduce prolonged use of prescription PPIs without indications and to curtail extended use of over-the-counter PPIs might be a good approach, unquote. Oh, man. I'm just happy no one has implicated Tums in all this as being dangerous. I stopped using PPIs a while back, but I don't know what I'd do without my Tums. Well, that's all for me for now. Ask your doctor if PPIs are right for you. Stay out of the sun entirely if you're a sunscreen addict. 
Avoid bacterial infections, since your options seem to be running out. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. I thank ye, I thank ye, I thank you. Jim, you are a star, sir. Each year, each, each video will churn in the mouth, lad. Thank you, lad, Jim. It's, it's, it's a pleasure, total pleasure. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's just great having like originals to Starship Plover. That's, uh, you know, it's just, it's fantastic. It's a lot of work for like Jeremy and Gary, but you know, we find it's worth it. If you want to support her and get more original stories, that would be awesome. Pop over to Patreon or PayPal. You'll be very welcome. Until next week, just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm rooting waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slow Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. Best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by.